Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a road trip from Philadelphia to Baltimore, exploring stories of chromosomal cut and paste, cancer cures, and Henrietta Lacks' incredible cancer cells. Before we start, a couple of things you might be interested in. Back in episode 18 of this series, we talked about the challenge of diagnosing and treating rare genetic diseases. If you'd like to explore more, RareFest, the Cambridge Rare Disease Network's Festival of Arts and Science celebrating rare diseases, is happening online this year on the 28th of November. It's an all-day free virtual festival featuring interactive exhibits showcasing cool science, visionary technology and pioneering organisations improving lives and bringing hope to those affected by rare diseases, along with talks from experts, patients and family members, as well as art and films. To find out more, head over to camrarediseaseorg slash rarefest20 or just go to the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com for the link to book your place for free right now. And in case you hadn't noticed, I have a book out. If you'd like to know more about where cancer came from, where it's going and how we might beat it, my new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, is out now in the UK and you can find all the links to buy it from your favourite retailer as well as signed book plate stickers and limited edition signed hardbacks at rebelcellbook.com. Now, on with the episode. Human cells are a linchpin of biomedical research. Studying human cells in the lab allows us to understand more about how they work, investigate the causes of disease and design new treatments. But growing cells in the lab isn't as easy as you might think. As it turns out, growing cells outside the human body is a tough task. Until the 1950s, whenever a researcher wanted to look at human cells, they needed to take them from a person and use them within a matter of days, after which the cells inevitably died. This annoying habit made research on human cells incredibly tricky. So, in the early 1950s, George Otto Gay, a researcher at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, set about trying to develop techniques that would allow him to grow human cells outside the body, a technique known as tissue culture. Gay and his wife Margaret spent years trying to grow any cells they could get their hands on. Gay even called himself the world's most famous vulture, feeding on human specimens almost constantly. One day, Gay was contacted by a cancer surgeon named Richard Wesley Tillinder, who was studying different types of cervical cancer in the hopes of improving diagnosis and treatment. Tillinder asked for Gay's help in growing and comparing the cells from different types of cervical tumour. Of course, Gay, seeing more cells for his quest, instantly accepted. Tillinder worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, closely tied to the university. It was a charity hospital, treating patients that were unable to pay their medical bills. All of the patients were poor, and many were black. Like many other doctors at the time, Tillinda felt that because the patients in the public wards were receiving free care, it was absolutely fine to use them for research without their knowledge. So he began collecting tumour samples from the operations he performed on patients at the hospital, without bothering himself with the hassle of asking for their permission. When a new sample was taken, 
it would be sent over to Gay's lab and inevitably land on the desk of Mary Kubitschek, Gay's 21-year-old assistant. Kubitschek would meticulously sterilise her equipment, carefully slice the sample into squares and drop them into a test tube of culture medium, designed to provide everything the cells needed to grow. She sealed each tube with a stopper and labelled the sample with the first two letters of the patient's first name and the first two letters of their last name. Then she popped them in an incubator, waited patiently and inevitably watched them die within a few days. Until one day in February 1951, one tube of cells didn't die. In fact, they multiplied at a terrifying pace, doubling in numbers every 24 hours. They didn't just live a little longer than other cells. They continued living in the culture medium indefinitely, as long as they had food, warmth and space to grow. They were the first cell line to survive outside the human body, the first immortal cells. The label on the sample tube read, HeLa. After his discovery, Gay appeared on TV, hailing these HeLa cells as the key to understanding and conquering cancer. Meanwhile, the real HeLa, Henrietta Lacks, had no idea her cells were causing such a stir in the world of biomedical research. The day that Henrietta's cells were taken from her without consent, she had travelled to Johns Hopkins from her home in Turner Station, Maryland, where she lived with her husband and children. Around a week earlier, Henrietta visited her local doctor, complaining of unexpected bleeding and a lump on her womb. The doctor assumed it was syphilis, but when Henrietta tested negative, he sent her to Johns Hopkins, the only hospital in the area that treated black patients. The gynaecologist on duty took a small sample of cells for diagnosis and sent her home to wait for the results. Unfortunately, it wasn't good news. The diagnosis was malignant cervical cancer, and Henrietta's doctors advised that she should return to the hospital as soon as possible for radiotherapy. When she arrived back at Johns Hopkins, Henrietta signed a simple form giving permission for proper care and treatment. She was then anaesthetised while tubes filled with radium were placed in her cervix. But first, while she was unconscious, the surgeon took samples of her cancer for Tilinda, who dutifully dispatched them to Gay's laboratory. A few days later, the radium tubes were removed and Henrietta was sent home to recover. She returned to Hopkins for a second radium treatment a couple of weeks later. The initial results looked good. Her tumour was shrinking and after the second treatment had vanished entirely. But weeks later, the cancer was back and it was spreading rapidly. More radiation therapy with ever-increasing doses followed. The treatment left her skin charred, but the pain and the tumours persisted, with new growths appearing almost daily. Eventually, her treatment was stopped, seemingly a lost cause, and she continued to deteriorate, all the while suffering horribly. For the last weeks of her life, she was strapped to her hospital bed to stop her from falling out as she thrashed in pain. Henrietta Lacks passed away on October the 4th, 1951, aged just 31, and was buried in an unmarked grave. But a small part of her was very much still alive.
Realising the incredible value of Henrietta's cells for cancer research, Gay began sending samples of HeLa cells to any scientists who asked for them. Soon, the cells were being mass-produced in a factory and shipped all over the world for $10 a vial. Their success wasn't a surprise. After decades of trying and failing to grow cells in the lab, here was a cell line that seemed ideal for research. Their cancerous nature made them hardy and relatively easy to grow, but in many ways they still behaved like healthy human cells, producing regular proteins and signalling to each other. The cells were also susceptible to infection, which made them ideal for studying viruses and bacteria. HeLa became the go-to human cells in biomedical research and quickly made their way to labs all over the world. Henrietta's cells fueled a boom in biomedical research. They were instrumental in early genetic research too. They taught us about how diseases worked, including cancer, polio, HPV, HIV, herpes, mumps, measles, Zika and many more. They've even been used recently in COVID-19 research. They helped us develop vaccines, including the HPV vaccine that's now given to girls to prevent the development of cervical cancers like Henrietta's. I've even used HeLa cells myself in my own research back during my PhD, adding in extra bits of DNA in search of the genetic control switches that can turn genes on or off. But Henrietta's family remained oblivious to the fact that her cells were now growing in labs all over the world and fueling a now multi-billion dollar industry. Henrietta herself was even erased from the story, with researchers spreading the pseudonym Helen Lane or Helen Larson to throw inquisitive journalists or family members off the trail. In fact, the Lacks family only found out about Henrietta's cells by chance in 1973 during a dinner party conversation. The family, who had little education, only understood that part of Henrietta was still alive and being kept in a laboratory somewhere. They were terrified and angry, but they didn't know who to contact to find out what was going on. Around the same time, scientists were noticing something strange going on in their cell cultures. They'd long joked that HeLa was so hardy they could survive on doorknobs, but it turned out that the cells could float through the air on dust particles, hitch a ride on equipment or lab coats, or travel through ventilation systems. And if one HeLa cell landed in a culture, it quickly took over. HeLa contamination was becoming a real problem, calling into question the results of many studies. It was the quest for a test for HeLa contamination that eventually led Henrietta's family back to her cells. When the family were asked for blood samples for genetic testing, they were sucked into a world of scientific research that they didn't understand and nobody took the time to explain. When they found out that Henrietta's cells were being bought and sold while they were living in poverty without health insurance, they were furious. They launched a campaign to recoup some of the money they felt fairly belonged to their family and control over how the cells were used. But the family was largely ignored and their campaign went on for decades. It wasn't until 2013, after yet another controversy, that they finally got to have some input on the use of Henrietta's cells. 
This time, researchers had published the genome sequence of HeLa and made it publicly available to download without prior knowledge or permission from the Lax family. This was the final straw. After the family objected to the publication, citing privacy concerns, the data was taken down. The HeLa genome is now stored at the National Institutes of Health and researchers who wish to use the data must apply to the HeLa Genome Data Access Working Group at the NIH, which includes two members of the Lax family. Beyond the ethical issues and the fact that these cells were taken from a poor black woman without her consent, there are also scientific issues with the cells, leading people to argue that it's high time that HeLa cells were retired from their use in research. HeLa cells have been growing in laboratories for decades and mutating all the time. As a result, the HeLa cells that are growing now are probably quite far removed, genetically speaking, from the original cells taken from Henrietta's body. Some have even suggested that they're so far removed from the human cells they once were that they've become their own species, proposing the name Helocyton gartleri, named after Stanley Gartler, the molecular biologist who first discovered that HeLa cells had contaminated other cell cultures. There are further practical problems with using HeLa cells in research. Their rapid growth and frequent mutations makes them unstable. Different batches can be highly variable, making it difficult to replicate scientific results. But even if we retire HeLa, there are plenty of ethical conundrums left regarding cell lines and using biospecimens in research. Although nearly 70 years have passed since Henrietta's cells were taken without her knowledge or consent, in the UK and the US, scientists are still legally allowed to use leftovers from blood tests, biopsies and surgeries for research without asking or telling the patient, as long as identifying details are removed first. Yet, in an age where DNA sequencing is becoming increasingly routine, is there any such thing as a de-identified sample that contains your DNA? In 2011, the US Department of Health and Human Services proposed updating the rules to require a patient's consent for using their cells in research. Still, the proposals were dropped after lobbying from scientists who believed the restrictions would hinder crucial research. So, if you've ever had a medical procedure that produced leftover biological material, like your blood, urine or tissue, your cells could be growing merrily in a lab somewhere, just like Henrietta's. Ethical issues and outrage aside, the story of Henrietta Lacks and her HeLa cells reminds us that behind every human specimen used in research is a person with their own story. So, when the next medical breakthrough comes, and right now, a coronavirus vaccine would be handy. Let's make sure we thank the patients, Henrietta included, who make this research possible. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so that more people can discover and enjoy the show? It's 1960, and two young scientists, Peter Knoll and David Hungerford, have just published a brief paper in the journal Science. 
It's just 300 words long, but it's about to set off a cascade of research that will change the way we think about cancer and medicine. The paper compared the chromosomes of white blood cells from four patients with a type of blood cancer called chronic myeloid leukaemia, or CML, with white blood cells from three healthy people. CML is a type of cancer that causes the white blood cells to multiply uncontrollably, eventually overwhelming the body. In the 1960s, there were no effective treatments. So a CML diagnosis was a virtual death sentence, with few patients surviving for more than five years. Noel Ann Hungerford's work showed that in the cancerous white blood cells of people with CML, one of the chromosomes was unusually short, a mutation that would become known as the Philadelphia chromosome after the city where Hungerford was working when he first spotted it. Although scientists had uncovered the double helical structure of the DNA molecules seven years earlier, they'd only really just begun studying the structure and function of chromosomes, the long strings of DNA inside all our cells. It wasn't until 1955 that we even knew exactly how many chromosomes humans have. Check out episode 12, Strands of Life, from our first series if you want more on that story. So, in 1960, when Noel and Hungerford's research was published, genetic research into cancer and chromosomes was still in its infancy. Like many great moments in science, Noel and Hungerford stumbled into their revelation about the genetic origins of CML almost by accident. In the 1950s, Noel was a cancer researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, looking at the cancerous cells of patients with leukaemia in his laboratory. He hoped that studying the growth characteristics of cancer cells might give him some clues into how the disease developed. Noel was looking at human leukaemia cells that he'd grown in the lab on small glass slides, which he would carefully preserve and stain to reveal their chromosomes. One day, he was feeling lazy. I'm sure we've all been there. So he just rinsed them under the tap before staining. The water caused the cells, which were mid-division, to swell up. In these swollen cells, the chromosomes spread out and became much easier to see. Noel didn't know much about genetics himself, so he couldn't interpret what he was seeing. But he suspected that his accidental discovery might be useful. Drawing a blank in his own institution, he asked around the cancer research community, seeking a partner with knowledge of what chromosomes should look like who might be interested in this new technique. It wasn't long before he found David Hungerford, a PhD candidate and a keen photographer working at the Fox Chase Cancer Research Centre in Philadelphia, who'd spent years examining chromosomes under his microscope. The pair soon started collaborating, perfecting the solutions and techniques that made the chromosomes in cancerous and healthy blood cells fan out like a peacock's tail. Noel sent over preparations of cancer cells splatted out onto slides, and Hungerford's finely trained eye searched for abnormalities. For years, they found nothing unusual. Then, one day, Hungerford peered down his microscope at the chromosomes of a white blood cell from a patient with CML and noticed something strange. One chromosome was much smaller than it should be. Ever the photographer? He snapped a picture. 
This blurry black and white image is the first evidence of the genetic origins of leukaemia in humans. After this exact same tiny chromosome turned up in cells from other patients with CML, Noel and Hungerford suspected it was definitely linked to the development of cancer, writing at the end of their 1960 paper, The finding suggests a causal relationship between the chromosome abnormality observed and chronic myeloid leukaemia. But many scientists were sceptical, and one brief paper wasn't enough to convince them. The prevailing theory at the time was that cancer was caused by environmental factors like exposure to carcinogenic chemicals or by viruses. Undeterred, they continued their work, examining the chromosomes of more patients with CML. Hungerford and Noel went on to confirm that the majority of people with CML had the same small chromosome, which by then had become known as the Philadelphia chromosome. Eventually, researchers around the globe confirmed their findings, and we now know that 95% of CML patients have the Philadelphia chromosome in their cancer cells. Initially, scientists widely assumed that these unusually short Philadelphia chromosomes formed thanks to the deletion of genetic material from the ends of the chromosome. But in the 1970s, a researcher from the University of Chicago called Janet Rowley, the matriarch of cancer genetics, realised that this wasn't the case. Rowley was fascinated by examining the genetic origins of disease. She developed techniques for staining chromosomes and highlighting the bands on each chromosome, making them easier to identify and illuminating any unusual changes. Rowley set to work using her techniques to study the chromosomes of cancer cells. When she looked at the chromosomes of white blood cells from patients with CML, she discovered that the Philadelphia chromosome wasn't formed by a deletion of genetic material after all. The mutant chromosome formed when two chromosomes, 22 and 9, got broken and the two end pieces swapped places a process known as translocation. In this case, a tiny part of the larger chromosome, number 9, gets switched for the bulk of the already petite chromosome 22, creating a barely noticeably larger number 9 and a teeny-weeny 22, the infamous Philadelphia chromosome. Building on Rowley's discovery, in the 1980s, Nora Heisterkamp and her colleagues at the National Cancer Institute showed that the break on each chromosome occurred in a specific position, at the ABL gene on chromosome 9 and the BCR gene on chromosome 22. So, when the two pieces swapped places, the result was a fused hybrid gene on the Philadelphia chromosome, known as BCR-ABL. Later experiments by Owen Witt at the University of California, Los Angeles, showed that the fused gene coded for an enzyme known as a tyrosine kinase. Although tyrosine kinase enzymes are common throughout the body, the enzyme made by the BCR-ABLE fusion gene is unusually active, resulting in the uncontrolled cell growth of white blood cells that characterises CML. In just 40 years, we'd gone from having no understanding of how CML developed to knowing in-depth the genetic and molecular origins of the disease and having a potential target for a cure, the rogue BCR-ABLE enzyme. The hunt was on. (laughs) 
Like many optimistic young researchers, Brian Drucker, an oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard Medical School, was determined to cure cancer. He theorised that by understanding the mechanisms that led to cancer, he could figure out a way to selectively kill cancer cells without harming normal cells, avoiding the downsides of aggressive chemotherapy while still keeping cancer at bay. I saw cancer as being a tractable problem, he told the Smithsonian magazine in 2011. People were beginning to get some hints and some clues, and it just seemed to me that in my lifetime it was likely to yield to science and discovery. Drucker's search for a cancer that was mechanistically well understood and potentially curable soon led him to CML. By this point, scientists already knew precisely which runaway enzyme was causing the disease, making it an obvious target for intervention. Drucker became a man obsessed, frequently staying in the laboratory until late at night and devoting himself to the search for a cure for CML, at the expense of his marriage. But his search wasn't as simple as looking for a molecule that would inhibit this treacherous enzyme. First, he had to develop techniques for tracking and measuring the activity of the BCR-ABLE enzyme so he could observe the effects of any potential new therapy. Despite his devotion, progress was slow. Eventually, the head of medical oncology at Dana-Farber told Drucker that the project just didn't seem to be going anywhere. It was awful, Drucker recalled to Smithsonian magazine. I was depressed, but it forced me to say... Do I believe in myself? Am I going to make it, make a difference? Too stubborn to quit, Drucker moved to Oregon Health and Science University and continued his crusade. When I moved here to Oregon, my goal was to identify a drug company that had a drug for CML and get that into the clinic, he said. For a long time, it was a fruitless search and it looked like things were going nowhere. But then came the breakthrough. A friend at the drug company Novartis told Drucker about a new compound they'd made called STI-571, which could block tyrosine kinase enzymes. But they weren't sure what to do with it. Drucker jumped at the chance to try it out, and he soon confirmed that STI-571 inhibited the BCR-ABLE enzyme that causes CML. Next, Drucker had to prove that the compound would slow or stop the growth of cancerous cells. And in laboratory tests, the cancerous white blood cells that were treated with the compound died, while healthy cells were unaffected. It was the breakthrough Drucker had been searching for. Skeptics were quick to point out that the human body contained hundreds of different tyrosine kinase enzymes which the drug could block, causing potentially devastating side effects. But Drucker soldiered on with his experiments undeterred, showing that the drug eradicated CML in mouse models of the disease with no significant side effects. Eventually, Drucker had gathered what he considered to be enough evidence to bring the therapy to clinical trials. But Novartis disagreed, and in fact advised dropping the project. So, stubborn as always, Drucker went straight to the FDA, who granted permission for human trials to proceed under Drucker's supervision. The first clinical trial for STI-571, now known as Gleevec, began in 1998, and it was a resounding success. The trial participants had exhausted all other options for CML treatment and were waiting for death. The drug all but eliminated their disease, 
Of the 31 patients in the trial, 30 had normal white blood cell counts within a month. Further trials also had positive results, and after five years, 98% of people receiving Gleevec were still in remission. Gleevec was approved by the FDA in record time in 2001 and hailed as a miracle cure by the media, with good reason. Today, people with CML who respond to Gleevec can expect to live as long as someone without cancer. It is, in my humble opinion, arguably one of the greatest cancer drugs of all time. One drug, which nearly got shelved, has transformed CML from a death sentence to a manageable, long-term disease, netting billions of dollars in profit for Novartis in the process. And its remarkable success fueled an explosion of research to find the next blockbusting cancer therapy. Drucker himself hoped that the story of Gleevec could serve as a model for curing other types of cancer. You describe a clinical entity, understand its molecular pathogenesis, and use that knowledge to describe a specific therapy, he said in a 2010 presentation. But as is often the case in science, particularly when cancer is involved, that is easier said than done. After the success of Gleevec, researchers continued to look for more cancers caused by fusion genes and rogue molecules that they could target in a similar way. But so far, they have found relatively few other examples. Still, there are plenty of targeted therapies on the market now, and it is becoming standard practice to look at the genetic makeup of many cancers before deciding on a treatment. But alas, few are magic bullets bringing the kind of survival gains that have come with Gleevec. Unfortunately, the success of this wonder drug fooled us into thinking that cancer could be straightforward to treat just by targeting a specific genetic mutation. In reality, CML is the exception rather than the rule, because every cancer cell contains the rogue BCR-able fusion, and they're all pretty similar. Most other cancers are made up of a mishmash of cells with many different genetic mutations, making them much more challenging to treat. And we also now know that cancers can evolve resistance to therapy, coming back with a vengeance later down the line. But Brian Drucker hasn't given up on his dream of curing cancer. He says, For me, the future of cancer research is far more targeted therapy. The analogy I use is infectious diseases. A century ago, if you got an infection, that was fatal. But antibiotics and vaccinations and public health prevention programmes were discovered, all targeted therapies. We can make cancer treatable and curable, or even eradicate it, over this next century. If the cause has been discovered, there's hope for a cure. If you'd like to learn more about HeLa Cells, Henrietta Lacks' story and her family, I highly recommend the fantastic book by Rebecca Skloot, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And the tale of the Philadelphia chromosome is expertly told by Jessica Wapner in her book, The Philadelphia Chromosome, A Genetic Mystery, A Lethal Cancer and The Improbable Invention of a Life-Saving Treatment. And yes, I do also have a book out, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, looking at where cancer came from, where it's going and how we might finally beat it, is out now in the UK 
and you can find all the links to buy from good and evil retailers, as well as signed bookplate stickers and limited edition signed hardbacks at rebelcellbook.com. The US version is coming soon, and it's available to pre-order now too. So get on it, folks. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at the past, present and future of the Human Genome Project. And before that, there's another bonus episode of Genetic Shambles to fill your ears. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research and scripting by Emily Nordvang. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music is composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, and audio production is expertly done, as always, by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.